0: Yeah, I, was, I just always called it, I was like, oh these damn death lizards. You know, like got <laughs> the, the death lizard basilisk geckos.
1: They're almost like Ein An- 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 are from that Norse mythology, like Viking warriors that once, that died in the battlefield and were chosen by the gods to come back at Ragnarok, you know, at the shattering, the end of the world, when the Elden Moon is broken, and they'll fight you know, to restore order and liberation. But something unique about Elden Ring with its open world is how, uh, like, accessible it makes the game. You can go anywhere, and you can level up to any extent um, to power up for whatever challenge you need to meet. Whereas with Dark Souls 3, like you said, like, you meet a boss you can't fight and you grind to a halt.
0: I just realized your initials are also same. So we could be oh, like- <laughs> you
2: want me to really make it spooky? Hold up. Alright, uh, pay attention here. Take the last letter of each of my names, but go backwards.
0: Oh, oh my, my god! <laughs> That's wild.
2: <laughs> we have issues with people engaging in the PvP, which I think we're bleeding more players than we're getting new players, you know? So it's, it's not a good position right now, and I'm quite worried, if I'm being honest.
0: I, uh, I summoned you as a furled finger, and now you're here to challenge us, but let's see what you got. <laughs> Welcome, Foul Tarnished. You're listening to Elden Kings, and Elden Ring discussion. I'm Cosmosis, and with me is co-host, Sir Gideon the Half-Knowing.
1: Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining. Today, we'll be discussing Dark Souls 3 as the predecessor to Elden Ring. Uh, what do you have to say about that, Cosmosis?
0: Oh, yeah. I just want to uh, preface this by saying, by no means am I an expert in DS3. Uh, you know, my heart definitely lies in the uh, the Elden Ring world, but I, I do enjoy DS3. Um, for that reason, we have a special guest on today who does a homing souls cast on YouTube, which you'll find links to that in the description.
1: Yes, uh, that special guest will be joining us soon. Um, I actually played Dark Souls 3 to try and get reacquainted with it as a preface to this podcast episode. I made it all the way to Lothric Castle before I died horribly to the knights and lost over 100,000 souls. But it it really reminded me about a lot of different uh, elements of Dark Souls that served as predecessor concepts to what we see in Elden Ring, you know, like sort of how Dark Souls 1 used a lot from Demon Souls. Uh, when was the last time you played Cosmosis?
0: I played after I platinumed Elden Ring. Uh, I had like three really solid playthroughs of Elden Ring, and then was like, okay, you know, what do I do now? And you know, jumped jumped into DS3, and I had a really good time doing it. And at that point, I was like, well, I platinumed Elden Ring, so I won't play it again for a while. And as soon as I finished DS3, I was like, well, what do I do? And again, went went back to Elden Ring. Um, but yeah, it was it was really fun. I my playthrough I did with the uh, mercenary swords, the uh, I think they're the twin blades. Um, so I like beat beat it with the starting weapons. So that was kind of fun. And I really didn't run into any problems until the final boss. Like that was where I actually got caught up. And then it kind of took me a week of playing for like fifteen or twenty minutes, you know, and just trying them and trying them until I finally got them. So yeah once I did that was super exciting.
1: yeah, Soul of cinder definitely left a mark on me like a lot of Dark Souls Three towards the ending I like just flew through. but when I got to Soul of Cinder, not only did it like stop me in the in my tracks but it also had like a sort of like damn this is the entire culmination of the dark souls series moment you know i got halfway through the fight and gwyn's like pling pling plong started and i was like oh my gosh it's the it's the reference to dark souls 1. Oh my i'm lore you know
0: <laughs> yeah it's wild he definitely is the culmination of all all the games put into one and you can see that in his move sets where it's like you know all these different style weapons that he changes between he knows magic he knows faith like it's all encompassing so it it was a really interesting fight um so i know we kind of jumped to the end of dark souls so i just i wanted to bring it back to the beginning because this is going to be like the dark souls and elden ring comparison uh so i know that you know what i
1: do remember when the first dark souls came out oh gosh i think it was 2011 or 2010 um nice yeah, so I don't think Dark Souls 3 came out until 2016 or 17. Um, right. Not much time the- between the two, like, the all three titles, but a lot of work went into them and the of DLC. I
0: know that uh, it's, it wasn't as... There wasn't as much backlash for Dark Souls 3 as there was DS2, but I also feel like... I mean, me personally, I feel like Bloodborne was, like, an overcast shadow over DS3, where, like, DS3 kind of came and went, and then, like, you know, Bloodborne's cult following following stuck with it, and then you had Sekiro as well that was really shortly thereafter, I think, a couple years, right?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember. All I... My biggest remember of Sekiro's release is that it got announced right alongside Ghosts of Tsushima and Neo 2, so it was just, like, one of three ninja (laughs) games, which, I don't know, that cracked me up seeing all the trailers um dark souls 3 was certainly overshadowed by bloodborne in my opinion i know that like for a long time when i thought about soulsborne and when i or when i discussed it with people we'd be like oh yeah dark souls 3 was cool but like what about bloodborne you know like it was just the go-to topic while dark souls 2 was always like shit on for a long time
0: um yeah i i uh i Bought Dark Souls 2, I think it was one of the first Souls games that I ever bought, and I returned it within, like, a couple days. Mostly, I mean, I think if I went back to play it now, I might not hate it so much, but it was just, I just didn't understand it. And then the fact that, at the time, the community didn't seem to like it either. You know, I, I guess I don't feel bad that I returned it at the time, being like a completely new player. It's like, you, you come into a series of games that FromSoft is made, and you pick what, like, a lot of people say is the worst game you know i i I hear that a lot so starting there was was really rough um but yeah with ds3 i think i saw like a tyrannicon video recently where he like tiered it really low because he considered it to be like a reiteration of the other games where like it didn't bring anything new and after thinking about it i i sort of agreed a bit because one of the things that FromSoft done, does with all of their games is they, like, introduce these, like, really cool new mechanics. So, like, Bloodborne was the the gun and the trick weapons. And then you have, like... You, the, well, the Dark Souls series originally, you know, kind of was medieval-style, you know, swords and hammers and axes and whatnot. And then... And then Sekiro was this crazy fast-paced parrying, and then Elden Ring—you have like the jump mechanic in the open world. So like each of those games really brought something new to the table. Where Dark Souls Three, I felt like they were just kind of riding, you know, Demon Souls and the the rest of the Dark Souls series.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that in a way. For a long time, I always put Dark Souls 3 beneath Dark Souls 2, even at the bottom of my tier list when ranking the game sometimes, because by the end of playing it, I felt so fatigued by the insanely long combos and roll spam, you know? Like, Sister Frida was fun, but uh, by the time I fought her on, like, New Game Plus 4, I just felt exhausted by, like, the fight, you know? It just... It didn't keep me coming back in the same way that Dark Souls 2 did, which, like, I'm gonna be blank about it. I am a total love fan. I'm a fan boy of Dark Souls 2. It was my first game. Um I love everything about it. I, I also love Dragon Age 2, which is also the black sheep of its family. Um, like there's something there's something so unique about all of the elements of Dark Souls 2 that feel like they're, you know, cast off notes that weren't included on Dark Souls 1, or they feel like they were like the natural following of what happens in dark souls 1 and on top of that vendrick as a character is like the king of want you know it's it it gets me you know i like the storytelling of it the way that dark souls as a whole influences elden ring is a very interesting thing to see because um it's like elden ring's backstory it's lore it follows a lot of the same teach like history and storytelling as dark souls 1 to 2 but then Dark Souls 3, with its story of the unkindled ash returning these like miscreant dem- like lords of cinders to the throne, it follows the same idea of gathering the different elden- like miscreant shardbearers and demigods from Elden Ring and keep bringing them back like under the yoke of the Golden Order after they've fallen out of grace with the greater will. You know, it's, it's interesting to see that interplay between thoughts.
0: Yeah, the the stories are definitely, like, if not interconnected, definitely they're sort of parallel universes, it seems, where, yeah, it definitely does follow that same pathway and the same ideas there. You just kind of re- replace some bits and pieces. Um, and then, yeah, outside of, like, the lore and the story-inspiring Elden Ring, I mean, you have the exact weapons. I think one of the first weapons you can come across in DS3 uh is the the guy out there with the uchigatana right out of the um the fire linking shrine and i know that you know the uchigatana is an elder ring you have those the a bunch of creatures that you know went from both games but i, I guess El- uh, from soft has stayed consistent with with you know i think we talked about in the last episode kind of having little uh easter eggs and homages to like previous games but like, the, the the Death Lizards, I, I call them. I don't know what their actual name is. I don't know if you do. <laughs> the Death Lizards? Yeah, the ones that cost caused... Cost, oh! Cost
1: oh, the, uh, the, oh, the, of, the, the Basilisks! The, <laughs> the oh, Petrification... Yeah. I, I I always called them Petrification Geckos. Until I think had... I saw someone on Reddit call <laughs> them Basilisks.
0: Yeah, I was. I just always called them... I was like, oh, these damn Death Lizards. You got, like, the... <laughs> The Death Lizard basilisk geckos, you got like crabs, there's a bunch of uh of parallels. I think you and I were talking
1: earlier and you, you compared uh Aldrich to Rycard. Yeah, the same I mean like mechanically as fights, they're distinct because gameplay and bosses, but within the lore, Rycard's concept as a cleric is that he uh he was a cleric that guarded against the evils of the abyss, but over time came to worship it. And when he started to devour clerics, um, he became so bloated that he fell into a puddle of sludge and became the disgusting thing that we see. But he kept getting fed people, and over time he grew powerful, and his his like idea when he was forced to link the flame, it we gave him a scene like a vision of the abyss that just swallowed the world and a deep peace that would follow, and you'd have to swallow the gods, quote unquote, to do that in like his item description. And that's very reminiscent of Rykard as a character, you know, Prider Rykard, who was, like, you know, the leader of a, like, group of knights that worked out of Volcano Manor as the Inquisitor of the Golden Order, where he guarded against all of the decay and the broken bits of it, you know, like the omen and the rotten Eldenorix. but over time he became so disgusted with his own, like, With the gods themselves and the order he upheld, that he decided to take into himself the power of, like, the serpent and the greed to become more powerful. So he let the serpent, um, like, the reincarnated great serpent, eat him, and then he became one with it, and then he started devouring other people. And he even had a similar concept of the vision of the serpent swallowing the god that's i think in bernal's weapons description it's like what like the weapon's supposed to look like a serpent eating the world like yeah you know, it's very interesting
0: yeah no it it really is i think some of the connections you made are stuff that like kind of goes over my head but then when you explain it in a way that i can understand it 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 makes a ton of sense um i kind of wanted to switch up topics a little bit just like, so we kind of covered the lore, maybe some of the creatures, but, like, I guess as a game, I saw a, a recent Reddit post by Daxter999 um, talking about, you know, which L, you know Dark Souls game was the best. And I thought it brought up some interesting topics for me where I guess one of them that I thought was kind of cool is with a lot of the Souls games you get like locked into certain areas by bosses and you can't progress whatsoever but with Elden Ring like i feel like you virtually can't really get stuck like there's always something to do if there's something that is tripping you up and it's giving you a hard time you can just go to another area and you know try some stuff over there and then come back to it i don't know what your thoughts are on like the open world you know El- version of Elden Ring versus you know the kind of clustered streets of of the souls like the soul series
1: that's something that actually impressed on me quite a bit even from my first playthrough of elden ring like while exploring i i uh took that you know my friend called it the uh, being abducted to brazil but he um it's that trap chest that takes you to the mines in scarlet Caled, where there's a bunch of slaves working for pests it's oh, um like I did that early on and I met like quite right a challenge in my exploration. But something unique about Elden Ring with its open world is how uh like accessible it makes the game. You can go anywhere and you can level up to any extent um to power up for whatever challenge you need to meet. Whereas with Dark Souls 3, like you said, like you meet a boss you can't fight and you grind to a halt. There's only three major sequence breaks in the game, and only one of them really Sequence breaks the game so hard that they can give you early on titanite chunks with going to Lothric Castle early if you can defeat the dancer But, like, that's not something accessible to new players at all Um, I think an interesting thing that's sort of comparable is people's reviews of Bloodborne compared to Sekiro Uh, Both games are sort of harder with more intensive bosses and challenges than the mainline Soulsborne games But in Bloodborne, you're able to summon and you have the RPG leveling system, which people prefer to the Sekiro design, which is like by far more intensely demanding in the gameplay side because you can't level your character beyond like upgrades. But even the upgrades are dependent on your game knowledge.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, I guess Bloodborne does have a couple ways to circumvent yeah between summoning and then the chalice dungeons you do have places that you can go to to level up when you need to but still i think with both of those games um although i think Sekiro, there is like a little bit more ability to circumvent bosses to get to other areas there are so definitely some road road roadblocks but i think pretty early on if you know the game well enough you can kind of get through it and avoid some bosses if you didn't feel like doing them whereas like Bloodborne like i mean what to get a pass you have to get a password to to get in the forbidden forest by fighting Vic or Amelia you know like it does have its optional bosses but that one is also still kind of like you're locked in a box of i need to progress through this area and beat this boss before i can get to the to the next one so i thought that that was one of the really cool uh functions that Elden Ring had where it's like you you can go to those harder areas if you want to um but- my playthrough was really meticulous where like i was trying to figure out where i was supposed to be instead of like doing the exploring so i was like okay i'm gonna do everything i can in Limgrave. i'm gonna find everything that i can i'm gonna find every item every dungeon then i'm gonna like move forward um like not, not not over leveling i don't think looking back on it but just i i was i thought i was playing it Essentially almost in like story mode. Like it doesn't have one, but I was trying to follow the story and follow everything as intently as I could. Uh, where I had a friend who took that transporter chest from from Limgrave over to caleb and then he just like the whole night he was running around (coughs) caleb trying to figure stuff out. Um, so it was two two very different playthroughs where like I'm in Limgrave and then I'm in Liernia and then, you know, he's in caleb and the next thing you know, he's like over at Volcano Manor. Um, when I talk to him next, so it's it's cool the freedom that it has, where um, I think it can add for a lot more individual experience, and then I think a certain level of replayability too. Uh, I've seen like different sides of the coin where some people are like, "Elden Ring doesn't feel that replayable," "Elden Ring does feel replayable," but I feel like your complete autonomy to go wherever you want and do whatever you feel like doing, and you know skip whatever you don't feel like doing i i think is really cool
1: yeah to me i think elden ring is extremely replayable if you know what you want to do like all of those like random dungeon the mini dungeons i find intolerable after doing them once or twice i think that they were so creatively designed and that the way that they like compound on each other is really fascinating especially the one like the catacombs where there's all sorts of tricks, and by the end of it, you're running through mere dungeons. It's, it's like, it, it must have been so fun to design them, I imagine. But at the same time, as a player, I really only care about the challenge that comes from, like, the mainline legacy dungeons and, the que- and like, the mainline bosses, you know? I don't have as much of a taste for fighting elite enemies that are designed as mini-bosses. Or just, like, the random... Um, you know, like, I th- like by the end of... By my current playthroughs, really the only people I fight as mini bosses are, like, tree Sentinels and the ones that I deem as fun on their own, like Dragonkin Soldiers or... I um, can't think of many others. You know, Black Knives. The Catacombs are still fun to plow for Death Root specifically, but other than that, you know, it's... Like, what's I, the point a- <laughs> I'm of
0: I'm of the same mind as you are uh... Although I, it took me two playthroughs to get to this, so like my first two, play, so my first playthrough was completely blind. I went and tried to find everything I could. My second playthrough, I used uh, Extra Life's uh, interactive map and just kind of was like, okay, I'm gonna go do everything that I know where it is. But like, what did I miss? And I think, um, obviously, it missed some quest lines. But in terms of like locations and dungeons and things, I think I missed like three in the game, which I was super stoked on. So that playthrough, I just, I did like everything again, plus those extra ones that I missed. But at this point, yeah, I mean, I'm like barely, I'm just going to do the things that I want to do, which is, yeah, more of the thrill of fighting uh, the bigger main bosses. I don't feel the need to really run around the dungeons and, and grab every item. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm of the same mind of you where it's like, I'm either fighting things because I think they're really fun or because they're going to give me something that I need with... uh my current playthrough. I think just last night, I finally picked up the fifth Seedbed Curse. So I'm, I'm excited about that and finishing that ending. It was one I was kind of looking forward to that I left hanging for a little bit and started playing some other games, but I started getting back into it, and it's pretty exciting.
1: Yes, so. I uh, I agree. I think the Seedbed Curses are particularly funny, because they're all in a bunch of rich, noble locations in the Halleague Tree and Lame so it's like the Dung Eater is just killing all of the rich people that waited out the shattering with horrible curses before he got put in the dungeon. Uh, at least that's my reading of it. You know, it's enemy locations and item locations. It's all up to the speculation.
0: Yeah, you have really good speculation. For people that don't know, uh, Gideon has written this really awesome uh, lore document that's going to be released with this episode, but it's going to be really relevant to our next episode. Um He's definitely a wicked lore expert. Um do we want to talk a little bit about uh like the story behind DS3 and then maybe get into
1: some PvP stuff? Yeah, let's do that. That's a good idea. Uh... Cool. Yeah, so I think one of the major story things, like that's similar but different between um Dark Souls and Elden Ring is the revive mechanic, you know, and Dark Souls one and two you're an undead you're a bearer of the curse you um you lose your memories you turn into a like basically a husk of a being that just yearns after souls so depending on what you know and how you play the game Like, if you don't make a backstory for your character, then your backstory is that you lost your backstory from losing your memories and going hollow, and now you're just completing the quests that people line up for you, or literally just killing everything in your path, because you're barely, like, sane. Or if you make a backstory for your character, maybe you're playing out the quest to your own, like, intellect and, like, deciding factor, but... By Dark Souls 3... There's a distinction, because all of the lords of Cinder are the undead from previous cycles that linked the fire, while the unkindled ash are the undead that were burned at bonfires as kindling. You know? Just, like, they didn't even complete their cycle. They're seen as worthless, or, like, less than worthless. And they have no history. But then you have the Tarnished and Elden Ring, who... They're almost like Ein, Ein are from Na- Norse mythology, like viking warriors that once that died in the battlefield and were chosen by the gods to come back at Ragnarok, you know, at the shattering, the end of the world when the Elden Ring is broken and they'll fight, you know, to restore order in the Elden Ring like, there's a prophecy by the two fingers that one day the Tarnished will return and uh, bring order back, you know like, one of them will become Elden Lord. And because of that sort of, oh, go on
0: no, you can finish your thought. I'll, I'll edit it, oh okay,
1: uh, yeah, because of that, like it just changes the idea from like you being sort of excused from the plundering because you you're insane as a hollow to you're very actively partaking in the pillaging of an ancient order, like your character has no excuse, they know what they're doing. The only excuse they have is that it's mandated by the greater will, but everyone you know is the greater will good for that, you know
0: i uh you brought up a couple really interesting points in there one was that the lords of cinder were the you know they had completed their cycles and I thought that that was really cool and brought like a nice level of history into linking the fire um where you see like each of them and their time period and like what they went through and why they you know why they either chose to link the fire or not to link it i thought that was that was really cool and then the other comparison that you drew, which i think is is carried through a lot of Fromsoft's games of this like idea of you died and then you're resurrected and then it's prophesized that you're gonna be the one to you know hopefully like a you know put things back the way they were or the way they should have been or to or to change it and then I, I think some commonalities between a lot of their games is you know a lot of the bosses and and main character in their stories are people like seeking immortality or strength and then it ends up they end up becoming like decrepit from it like it almost works backwards on them where they had this plan of like having this grandoise army and lifestyle and whatever and then they do these things I think um what is it with Prince Lothric and his twin you know they they go through unspeakable means to try and find someone to to link the fire and then when you do things like that it, it they end up going backwards so i thought that a couple of those points that you brought up you see those same story plot points in a lot of their games and i think it's really cool especially when you look at it as a
1: whole yeah i think uh you know like immortality or power but at what cost is a big theme um you know even back in demon souls you see the king uh, what was his name like I'm totally blind uh Prince's father, the king of Baldatari, uh he's <laughs> unlocked begins with- soul It him- it begins with an A, right? It- it's Elan. Elan, King Elan. <laughs> okay. Um you see King Alan, he's unlocked the secrets of soul magic and he brought like an age of like plenty to his civilization but at the end he's been reduced to this blubbering mass of flesh that only wants to die and bring death to everyone else like you know his his quest for, for like a prosperity for his people and himself ended in absolute nihilism you know it's it's like you say they have these ironic twists of fate that ruin what they ruin the quests that they had
0: yeah it is a it is an interesting thing that again stays consistent through all of his games I wanted to ask have you gotten into the pvp very much in, in ds3
1: so not as much as I wanted to I did the usual uh, like you know fighting outside of pontiff sullivan and uh, I was one of the aldrich faithful <laughs> for a very long time um And I did a lot of PvP that way, but I was never good at it, you know, I, I was very much approaching from a PvE standpoint, where people that had the technical aspect nailed would just parry the hell out of me and kill me in two hits with their, like, hyper-stylized weapons, you know? At one point, I tried using the dancer's blades, and that did, that didn't go over well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's funny. Yeah, I, uh... I'm the same. I mean, I I tried to get into it a little bit. Um, I definitely got into it a lot more in in Bloodborne and Elden Ring. But I my I would say my main PVP uh, experiment or uh, experience, I mean, was uh, like the, being one of the fair and watchdog of the tower, and and joining that covenant and and staying down there to come and come and help out. But I was still getting smashed left and right. I never really was. Super consistent with the with the PvP in there, and I think that's that's cool with all of their games too. That it it's like a great standalone game if you want to play by yourself, and then it's also awesome if you want to like interact with other players and have individual experience.
1: Yeah, I think that cooperation element is what draws people to stick with the game for so long and makes such a powerful online element. I know that the uh, the subreddit for Elden Ring PVP is extremely active and has some of the most in-depth like write-ups that I've seen across Reddit about Elden Ring, as compared to like some of the lore or like general concept discussions, which aren't as like well sourced. But I actually think that uh, we need someone that has more knowledge about this than us, you know, an expert in the subject. Uh, what do you think about that, Cosmosis?
0: It's funny. I was just about to say we sound amateurs in the pvp world so i was thinking we could maybe summon a furled finger to help us
1: yeah let's summon uh cooperator sam austria maxis to join us uh he's joining from the homing Zolescast podcast and his own youtube channel uh welcome to the roundtable, hold
2: Hoy lad uh it's very good to be here and uh i do have a lot of experience with Dark Souls uh, PvP, mostly in Dark Souls 3, uh, which I would love to talk about. Uh, I'm curious, though, if at first you wouldn't mind if I circled back to some of the lore that we were talking about, because uh, I feel like there might be some holes that I could fill in there from my experience with Dark Souls 3, as well as some things I might challenge that were said. Please oh,
0: do. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I would, I would love to do that, but first, would you just mind telling us a little bit about yourself and just a quick, quick, brief explanation on your, your Souls experience with FromSoft in general?
2: Absolutely. Uh, my quick rundown is that I first played Dark Souls 2, like you, and I absolutely hated it, like you. I did not like it at all. <laughs> and uh, it was about a year later I came back and gave Dark Souls 1 a fair shake, and I was like, this isn't like Dark Souls 2 at all. <laughs> I like this. And, uh... Then um, I circled back into Dark Souls 3 around the time the final update was coming in was when I got more serious with uh, PvP. And as I grew and realized that the, the PvP was quite layered and there was so much to learn, um, I felt like it was becoming increasingly challenging for newer players to understand and, and, and get in with such a high skill gap and uh, skill ceiling. So I started making uh, PvP guides. And I must have hit a good mark in YouTube somewhere because uh, I got a lot of attention from that. Um, I started making guides that were under 10 minutes so people could actually sit down and watch the whole thing. And I believe I was able to help quite a few people more quickly attune some of their abilities. Like this Dark Souls PvP knowledge, it's traded in secret. You know, there isn't a, a guide you can go to in game that tells you how to do these things like, like a pivot cancel or a pivot backstab or some sort of a swap or what scaling is and, and where the soft caps are, things like that, right? You can't find that in the game. It's all traded in secret. Maybe it's on the wiki, maybe it's not.
1: Yeah, hidden yeah. technical skills.
0: <laughs> yeah it's definitely not hand whatsoever and i think that's sometimes the frustration of people that jump into fromsoft games is like there is no real tutorial i mean like they might tell you like what a couple of the buttons do and then after that it's figure it out and i think that turns some people off where some people are like oh this is really cool like i get to yeah. try and experiment and figure out what's going on I-, I really like that aspect
2: it's something you don't really find in many other games so it 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 feels good in a way, but it's very abrasive, right? Like, some people aren't going to take that well.
0: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you for the brief history on your soul's experience. I, uh, I summoned you as a furled finger, and now you're here to challenge us, but let's see what you got.
2: <laughs> yes. So I wanted to come back to when we were talking about the lore. Um, so one thing that I feel like was missed Uh, for the Dark Souls games, is that there's a struggle between light and dark, right? The Age of Fire and the Age of Darkness. But, unlike most stories, it's not a good versus evil sort of thing. It's more ambiguous than that. So, you start Dark Souls 3, and you learn that the fire is fading, and the fire was used by gods to Keep the world more in control and, you know, presumably bring about uh, good things because you don't want to be in the darkness. But then the other side of it is that, like, darkness is the absence of power from the gods and thus gives power to humanity, an age of humanity. So you have this, this struggle between light and dark, not necessarily good and evil. And I think that's quite interesting. Dark Souls 3 is a world in decay, right? Elden Ring is very much still in a live world. Like, yeah, there's obviously problems and things that are undead and whatnot, but it still feels like a world that has more life in it to me. Whereas Dark Souls 3, it's not just Dark Souls 3's world decaying, it's all of Dark Souls' world decaying. It is the end of everything. And it slowly builds itself up until Ring City, where this all becomes an amalgamation where the worlds are violently uh, colliding and collapsing in on one another. Now, um, something else I felt wasn't uh, mentioned. So we talked about uh, Dark Souls 1 and 2, that you are uh, undead. You're the bearer of the curse. In Dark Souls 3, you're an ashen one. You're not a chosen one. You're not this chosen undead. You're not this savior. There is no prophecy. In fact, there's many other ashen ones right there. The first one you meet right at Firelink Shrine, Hawkwood. Who tells you to do what? He tells you, screw it. Don't help them. Why are we going to kill these lords of Cinder? Like, that's crazy. These are literal gods. Like, we don't have to do that. He's got this entire different of idea what he wants to do with his existence. Can I I
0: interject? Go ahead. I I could be wrong on this again, because I'm not the Dark Souls 3 expert, which is why we brought you on, but... I was under the impression that it was going to be an Ashen one that was prophesized to go and and relink the Fire Shrine. Like I thought it was Gun- Gundir or Gundir that was going to go and do it, and he showed up late, and the bell wasn't tolling. And then and then there's you. Am I in- incorrect on that? I thought it was prophesized that. There was no, be you're
2: correct one. that it is going to be an ashen one who rekindles, right? Because you have to be made of ash in order to continue the fire, yeah,
0: but ash you're not explain. specifically
2: the chosen one.
0: Well, you're not an Elden Ring either, right? You're you're a you're a tarnished, and all they say is a
2: correct. Tarnished. But I wasn't making this comparison to Elden Ring, I was making this comparison to like the first Dark Souls where you are you know, chosen undead.
1: Well, I technically, I could... in the first Dark Souls, it's, uh, the chosen undead speaks to any undead, and you become the chosen one by ringing the both bells of awakening, front, yes, correct. and France chooses you as the, uh, the one to continue. Unless you fail, and then you just continue on your own, right? Because it's like, who's gonna stop you? Um, yeah. Building off of what you said about how the world converges, I think it's one of the thing that people don't speak about as often is that Lothric itself is the land of converging lords, you know, like the catacombs of Carthus, the high wall of Lothric, the cathedral of the deep, all of those places weren't there originally. But by Correct. the convergence of worlds, like you say, they converge, and it's like by the time you link all of the Lords of Cinder back to Firelink Shrine and fight the Soul of Cinder, you see an even further convergence, and from there, Ring City and
2: yes, yes. Ring City is is the, the end of everything.
1: Yeah, so, dueling Gale at the end of the world.
2: In my interpretation of the lore, the way, dar- like the Ring City, uh, works, is that. Um, Dar- like they're all part of the same universe. These Dark Souls games. Dark Souls One, the Chosen Undead had rekindled the flame. In Dark Souls Two, the Chosen Undead had snuffed out the flame. But there have been many ages since then—ages of fire and dark. Like it has happened so many times. You see, Gwyn, and they reference him in the I'm Ring so- City, but they don't really know much about him anymore.
1: He's a forgotten figure. He's just the... He's the, you know, he's, he, he's the guy who committed the first sin. All the yes. condemns him and he's all but fallen out of knowledge. You know, he still has an influence on the soul of Cinder in its dying moments, but ultimately, he's just another lord of Cinder. It doesn't matter that he's the first.
2: He's just a man. That's something actually kind of... Uh, it, it, you would think it would be anticlimactic, but it's actually very fitting. For, uh, I think
1: yeah. Helps. You know, the King of the Sun is just another hollow by the end. He burned away yeah. his radiant soul to feed the flame. I think one thing I want to say about the bearer of the curse is that um the secret ending the Dark Souls 2 unlocked by the DLC is where you give up the choice. You know, Aldia's take on the game on the cycle, and the game's take on the choice is that. Whether or not you make the choice to condemn the flame or, like, save it, you still sit on the throne of want, you still take the throne, um, and you still collect all the souls, but if you take all three crowns and you defeat the curse, you can walk away from the throne. And I think partly that's sort of reflected in Dark Souls 3's lore, where the profaned capital is closely aligned with Drangleic, and... The person that linked the flame there wasn't a hollow, it was Jorm, a descendant of the giant lord from Dark Souls 2. And the giant, so maybe the bearer of the curse never linked the flame and you just fucked off. Um, but really, that's. Were they another part of the cycle? Did Jorm come after? I think that's sort of up to your interpretation and your own take on what you did in Dark Souls 2. It's,
2: yes, I, yeah. I think it is.
0: Yeah, I, I think the timeline in the in the Soul series is definitely like a hard one to nail down. But I found Yorm's story like interesting. It, it was sad and somewhat profound, where he like decided to like link the flame to, you know, to get rid of the profane flame, correct? And then he ended up like burning the people that he cared about and lost hope. Um, for some reason, although they're not similar plot lines, his character's story reminded me of of hug in the round table hold for whatever reason i think maybe just because of that somewhat somber and, and sadder aspect
1: i think there's a going theme with like strong characters that like save the people in need but because of their strength they're seen as uncivilized or just unbenign by the people that they try and care for. You know, Yorm is hated by the people he links the flame to save. Uh, Godfrey is exiled because he's seen as barbaric. His crucible knights are generally disliked. And you even see some of the crucible knights in Elden Ring rise up against the Erdtree by the time of the Shattering. You know, they fight with, uh, like, who is it? Rykar, the, the Volcano Man, and they fight with um, General Radon, you know, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, um, Sam, I had a quick question for you. Did, did you have uh, Well, actually, I'm going to extend it to become a broader question. So I know that you, from what I can tell and what we've talked about, prefer Dark Souls 3 to Elden Ring, and I was wondering if you could maybe get into why.
2: Well, the truth is... The largest reason is the PvP, which is where my, my heart and soul goes into these games. And it, there's many reasons I could list out as to why I enjoy Dark Souls 3 PvP more than Elden Ring. And even though it shouldn't, it does also sour some of the PvE experience for me. Um, just because I'm, I feel that disappointed in some aspects. It doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy my time uh, and enjoy the PvE in Elden Ring, and I can judge it separately from my feelings, but in terms of enjoyment when I'm playing, it's very hard to separate these feelings.
0: Yeah, would you, would you mind trying to get into like what causes them? Like, What is the difference sure. in Elden Ring's PvP to, to DS3?
2: So with Dark Souls 3, I was mentioning earlier how it's very layered. And there are many things that you need to improve at to see yourself succeed. Uh, very skillful gameplay, very well practiced and versed gameplay will take you pretty far, even from a a disadvantageous state. Let's say though, I'm playing Elden Ring. I'm not able to use a lot of these more advanced tactics that I'm able to in Dark Souls 3 to help see myself succeed. So let's say I invade. Into a one versus three, um, in Dark Souls three, I'm able to do things like uh, like pivoting to get backstabs. Um, a lot of weapons are strafable in their attacks. They don't have as much, um, uh, like, they don't track as well. That's the word I'm for. Um, you mm-hmm. can you can utilize. Like, weapon movesets, and although they're more simple, it's easier for you to, say, take like a Claymore and stun somebody, or reliably stun two people within, uh, within that Claymore's range. Whereas in Elden Ring, a lot of the weapons have very high tracking, very high damage, very long range. So that strips away a lot of those options. As well as how they increase the difficulty of actually getting backstabs, since they added in the um, the third check that uh, checks the angle of the person being backstabbed, the way they're facing, as well as they made the grab slower. And in comparison to uh, to other forms of damage, it's quite lesser. So backstabs are often just ill-advised when those could be used to punish uh, poor placement or spamming. So a lot of the options that I would have to utilize these things that I would improve myself with just are ill-advised or can't be done in Elden Ring, or they yield very little reward.
0: Oh huh. yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting topic. I didn't know that they added a third check for the uh, for the angling of the backstab. Um, I I didn't realize that. That's a. Yeah,
2: and I can see sort of why they did. I I have a couple of theories as to why that might have happened. Um, So if you're playing, like, Dark Souls 3, and somebody runs behind you and backstabs you, but you're locked onto them, you may very well be facing them when you get backstabbed, and some people call that a face stab. But that's because when you backstab somebody, it doesn't check for that angle. What it does is, in Dark Souls 3... The person going for a backstab, if they're at their back, they'll start the backstab animation. And then the other player tells that the one who's being backstabbed or attempting to be backstabbed will have a check run on them. Are you close enough to the other player? And are you in iframes? Does not care the angle that you're at. In Elden Ring, they changed it so it's like are you angled with your back towards them? And because they added that, getting backstabs is extremely difficult, also considering that the grab time was increased as well, so it just isn't a real punishment tool that you can use most of the time. When they happen, it's either accidental or from the very few weapons that have poor tracking or long recovery times. It's just not an option most of the time.
0: Right, yeah, no, I can definitely do what you're saying, and uh, another question relating to the PvP, I was curious, because I wasn't part of the um, you know, the the DS3 PvP community, you know, probably when it was at its peak. But did you see, I guess, an Elden Ring right now, and I, I think it's dissipating a little bit where people are starting to get more creative, but you have this whole everybody using rivers of blood or ev- everybody using whatever the meta build is. Did you see that a lot in the DS3 PvP where it was like everyone was running around with the same stuff? Or did you see everyone, you know trying different things and using different things. I was curious if the community right. was the same then.
2: I will answer your question, and I'll expand on to it. So in DS3, there were definitely meta setups, and they would be used. But the advantages they gave were smaller. Now, those small advantages still could carry you very far. But it wasn't as um, simple. There was, there was more to learn. So let's say you're using um, a Pontiff Night Curve Sword. Or even Murky Hand Scythe, the latter being the more brain dead option. But they both, um, they both provide an advantage because they're very powerful weapons. Um, and, and they, because of that, they're going to have an advantage over these other weapons, whether it be due to the range, due to quick step, uh, the moveset, set uh, efficiency, that sort of stuff. But, um, other weapons can also defeat them in the hands of a very skilled player. Um, and it's not like you have... Uh, you don't have as much to surmount as to say anybody who can press the L2 button with Rivers of Blood is immediately very dangerous. And that is just not the same in Dark Souls 3 with the very powerful weapon. But I do want to say, uh, in Elden Ring, I was, one of the things I was most excited for when seeing it, I expected build variety and diversity to be extremely big, and in some ways it is. But I might criticize the builds in Elden Ring as being more samey because of the Ash of War system. So you can can get access to oftentimes better versions of certain spells with higher damage, but then they have physical scaling, which really takes away from the magic builds. I didn't find myself wanting to make uh, an incantation build and then uh, a sorcerer build or strictly a, a pyro build and then a strength build. I, d- I didn't feel that same way in Elden Ring as I have felt in other Dark Souls games where those things were more clearly defined and it took more investment. I um. think uh, one, one thing I realized I have missed uh, tracing back to the PvP here. Um, that makes it less enjoyable is the time to kill. The time to kill in Elden Ring is very fast. Um, And that can make it more enjoyable for some people. Uh, And in some cases, Dark Souls 3's time to kill would be too high uh, because of certain things. But it also... it, It doesn't allow for as much back and forth, right? If you're in a disadvantaged state in Elden Ring PvP, it's very bad. It's very hard to recover from a disadvantaged state.
0: I would so- agree with that. I'll, so I'll let you go in a in a sec. But I I watched a video today where someone was using a spear, and you know those longer weapons in Elden Ring. And it's like once you get hit with it, you're staggered, and then it's it's just crazy. You're at an insanely disadvantaged state. I watched like clip after clip after clip of this guy with a spear, and it's like once he hits him once and staggers him a little bit. There's like nowhere really for them to go, and all of the clips you're right are incredibly fast. And I think when whether you're an invader or being summoned for a duel, it's a bit it's a bit of an investment to go through the loading and whatnot, and to have that experience and so quickly. I would agree did turn me off a little bit from Elden Ring's PvP.
2: Yeah, one of the uh, jokes I have heard is uh, when invading, you have a ten to fifteen minute wait for a thirty second
1: fight. Yeah. That's how, that's what turned me off of it when I tried to get back into it after like, the immediate launch. Um, yeah. Touching on what you talked about with Dark Souls 3, I know what got me to stop playing after the launch in that game as well. You know, it went from being an avid invader to. Eventually just dropping the game from both fight clubs and invading because I had grown sick of Dark Souls 3 and because of how quickly I could die, you know, not playing at uh, what was like a decently meta build at the time and being matched with people that were playing meta builds. You know, I'd die in maybe two or three blows from whatever weapon they were using and eventually after playing Dark Souls 2 for so long where you could survive things, I just dropped it. Um. But that is not even comparable to what you see in Elden Ring, you know, like consistently matching with ganks where everyone can use weapons that can hit you from way off screen from across the map um, and do most of your health bar and then put you into a, in such a disadvantaged state where you have to keep dodging and heal and keep dodging and heal and like that's not even playing the game. at that point. Yeah,
2: you're really forced into a backpedal state a lot of the time, whereas... In DS3, it might have been risky to attempt countermaneuvers, but the, the risk-reward was very high, and uh, you, could, you could definitely turn a battle in your favor, even while having you know, less than half of your health bar quite often. Uh, another thing that's coming to mind is that in Dark Souls 3, I wore uh, most of the time I wore decent, but not the most optimal armor, and that was okay like, you could kind of wear what armor you wanted to. It would affect your damage, absolutely, and it would affect your um, your poise. But in Elden Ring, I mean, if you're trying to make a serious invasion build, you really do have to stack some poise. like, And at higher levels, a lot! So you're only able to seriously utilize a few armor sets at higher level, and that's just very disappointing.
1: I think something that Surprised me with Elden Ring was how much resistances mattered. You know, like they get upgraded from all of your stats, they get upgraded pretty tremendously by your armor. And you know, after playing the new game plus two, I had that Dragon Crest Shield plus two talisman equipped at all times. You know, like resistances yeah. are very important.
0: I kind of wonder, like, where I, I don't want to say where they failed because, like you want late game weapons and you want um you know late game armor sets to have a bit of an advantage you want to feel that reward of picking something up that's like a little bit better than what you had before but not to the extent where it makes everything before that incomparable and i think it's unfortunate that the community as a whole sometimes or not the community as a whole, but like you have these people that just care more like less about actually playing and more about like what's gonna make me win every single time. I don't know how to explain it. Like obviously you want to win, but it's like at what cost? Why I just I personally don't understand the whole like everyone using like rivers of blood and the Bulgo armor and everything. To me it's like that it just I guess I see where you're coming from, Sam, where you were saying you know, DS3 required a lot more skill, where like Elden Ring, it just requires certain items and then spamming. And that I don't like, and I wish that... I, I I don't think it's FromSoft's fault for putting things in the game that would put you in at an advantageous position, but it's unfortunate that so many people were like, oh, this is an advantage, and now we're all going to do it. it. It becomes a little...
2: I think that um, perhaps they don't always think about how these things will affect a, a PvP state, or even a PvE state. Um, I if I were to pinpoint where I think this um really hits the, the worst part, and it's a very divisive opinion, is I think the passive poise system really turns me off the most from wanting to play the game. Just due to how much poise you can stack, there's a large set of weapons and attacks that aren't really viable. Because you'll turn around and try to hit a group of two to three people... And you might get that hit in, but then you're going to take two to three hits, and there's really nothing to be done about it. You might not even stop them. So then you're just, you know, the best course of action is to run away, which not very exciting. Um, yeah.
1: Uh, well, I think, uh, think what stands out the most to me is that overwhelmingly it becomes a 1v1 game. Because within a gank, if anyone in that gank is halfway good or equipped to fight at a 1v1 level, there'll be enough of a challenge on their own to distract you while you die from the others. And there's not enough technical skill that you can muster to overcome that advantage that they can get.
2: Yeah. Let's say in DS3, somebody stacked for the best they could. Let's say they stacked themselves, pawn of knight, curved sword, murky hand scythe, uh they're using good armor like lap armor or whatnot or 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 whatever. Maybe they even have Havel armor. It doesn't matter. Um they can stack all that, but a very good player, somebody who is, you know, considerably better than that person, is going to still sweep the floor with them most of the time. Like even somebody that's on par with them is still going to be able to challenge them, even with the the advantageous equipment. Whereas in Elden Ring, players who have <laughs> They don't, you know, they don't have the right to uh, to beat some of these people. They do, uh, despite them being of much lesser skill. And those upsets could happen in the prior games, but they're they're far less common. Because, I mean, it can just happen in Dark Souls. You know, you make a mistake, and then things tumble and whatnot, and you lost to a player who's probably not as good as you, or vice versa. Uh, you beat a player who's way better than you, and you probably shouldn't have, but. That's the norm in Elden Ring, whereas that was the exception in the other.
1: I know that my main playstyle with PvP, would become using screening spells like Adula's Moonblade or the Shard Spiral to uh, pin down anyone that tried to out-tank me or I tried to uh, like avoid zoning while I could then, you know, close out their options. You
0: know, we we've been talking a bit about uh, you know the PvP specifically, and I. You know, I I want to compare Elden Ring and Dark Souls three as a whole. But one thing while we were talking about the PvP, where I was just thinking about all of a sudden I'm in the the mode of like, what are all my qualms with Elden Ring PvP? And one of the biggest ones was the AFK farming. And I was that something that was being done in DS three at the time? Because that, no, it's
2: that, not it's not really painful. possible to do. You don't earn any souls. You could technically use some glitches to hide outside of the map or cheat engine or something. And although that did happen, it was very rare, and they didn't earn anything from it.
0: Yeah, that to me is just—it's just painful to see um, the arguments for like why AFK farming was like even slightly okay. And uh, yeah,
2: there's been some not good arguments about that, even in the form of, of videos. I've seen people heavily defend AFK farming, like, but this is. Absolutely hurting the community. This is not good.
0: Imagine sitting behind a load screen for like a while just to go and find out that you can't even fight the person that you were going in there to fight. And then if you fight someone that they summon to fight you, you're helping them, even though they put you in this like awkward situation where you don't really get a chance at it. At yeah. An, not, and not that even if you do reward,
2: but even if you leave, you still reward them.
0: Yeah. That, that was hard to see.
2: There's just some decisions that I, I don't understand how they came to, like uh, you know, Bloodhound Step just simply being in the game. It's very confusing to me. Like We had Quickstep, which was already very, very powerful, um, broken on some weapon in DS3, and then we have that return. But then we have a version that's faster than running, that did offers play, more uh, iframes. Did you play Bloodborne? Uh, yes, but I did not finish it. I don't own a PlayStation.
0: Oh, okay, gotcha. Well, Bloodborne has, and I can't remember the name of it right now, but an arcane tool that is Quickstep. I mean, not Quickstep, that is... Uh,
1: yeah, it's like the, it it, uh, yes, it's the Hunt Phone. It enhances your dodging ability or something. The thing about it, though, in
0: Bloodborne, which I don't know why they didn't stick with this, is in Bloodborne, um, when you use it, It doesn't, it's not an iframe dodge. Like, it makes you invisible for a second, and you pop over a few feet to the side. It's the exact same move. But when you're doing it, if someone, like, knows where you are, they can hit you, which I think would, like, make a lot more sense. Um, So I I get where you're coming from there. But yeah, the the Bloodhound step was something that was in Bloodborne, but it just wasn't at the level that it was at, and it would, I think it would be costing you bullets at the time and not the little bit of FP that it does in Elden Ring. Um, but I just kind of want to switch topics real quick from the PvP stuff. Uh, I was curious, what were your favorite bosses, Sam, from uh, Elden Ring and then from DS3, or vice versa?
2: Okay. Um, I actually really enjoyed the Radagon fight in Elden Ring. Um, I really liked fighting uh, Margit, Godfrey. I, I enjoyed all of those. Although I seem to be in the minority that I didn't enjoy Godfrey's second phase as much. Um, when it comes to Dark Souls 3, I think my favorite has to be Slave Knight Gale. It's just such a perfect fight. And I didn't really feel something to that degree in Elden Ring for me personally. It is... Uh, I mean, from the uh, from the setting... How purposeful it is that two nobodies fighting in the middle of nowhere are at the end of the world. Uh, the Dark Soul itself. Uh, Gail as a character, uh, so much emotion. The uh, references to to Gwyn and Lord of Cinder and all these things. It's just it's an amalgamation of feelings, and and the fight itself is challenging, and and it's a slog, but it's a fun slog. Uh, let's see, I also really enjoyed Champion Gundyr, um, for the fast-paced intensity that that fight can offer. That one was and, hard. And I, uh, quite enjoyed Sister Freed as well, for similar le- reasons to, as to Gale, but just not quite as good. But I still really enjoyed them.
1: Yeah, no, uh, Champion Gundyr is, he gets my blood pumping, you know? He's fast-paced, and I love it. Uh, Slave Knight Gale. I haven't given him enough time, I fought him twice because I've only done the DLC twice, but like you said, the, the aesthetic of fighting him at the end of the world is so great. I think one of my personal favorites, even though it's not so challenging in my opinion gameplay-wise is the Lothric Princes. Uh, like They're the people that put the Dark Souls 3 script into stasis by choosing not to link the flame, and then when all of the other Lords of Cinder are brought back and don't choose to link the flame as well like you know like the fact that you can fight them in their death script is this is our grave you know it could be yours too like even then they're still pleading with you to just give up i like it um radagon is one of my favorites from elden ring i uh i love fighting him solo like it's just you know it's the climactic duel against the champion with like the leal hound of the golden order it's sort of epic and like the non-ironic word (laughs) I'd
0: I'd have to say for me in DS3 which I I don't know why it like stuck out so much to me but uh, one of my favorite boss fights in that game was the Abyss Watchers Um, that and Pontiff Sullivan but I don't know why I really liked the Abyss Watchers and then after learning more about their lore I uh I thought it was really interesting that they're like, you know, trying to protect people from the deep and then they end up, you know, getting inflicted with it, and then they're in this perpetuated state of of killing each other. Um But it was it I think one of the reasons that it stuck out to me was when I was playing it's like I just thought I was really good. I was like, Oh, I I just killed this guy, like I'm crazy good at this and then the wolf's blood comes and pulls him and all together in one being Uh, and I don't know why it just stuck with me it's like a really interesting fight that kind of had not like had me on my toes it wasn't difficult or anything but just the the feelings that I got from it and I feel like two swords are really representative of of uh, what's the word I'm looking for here I don't know although it's magic and, and the fire I think the profane flame actually, but it reminds me of Robert Frost, "Fire and Ice," and I I like the idea of these two clashing things. And then it reminded me of the the Bloodborne fight with, um, Lady Maria. No, that's in the DLC. It's uh oh, uh, Margo...
1: oh Margo's wet nurse. I was about to say Morgoth's wet
0: nurse. I'm so confused. I'm between these games from playing them. Um, but yeah, no. Murgo's wet north wet nurse i like the idea of like summoning like a phantom version of yourself that you have to fight while still fighting the main boss i think that's pretty cool
1: yeah it's a pity most people kill her before that like second phase really goes off because it is pretty frightening
0: yeah in terms of elden ring my favorite bosses oh you were saying that a. Uh... What was the second phase? You were saying something about an unpopular opinion, Sam. Oh.
2: Oh, I said that. I didn't enjoy Godfrey's second phase as much as the first phase, and I found that to be quite an unpopular opinion.
0: I didn't enjoy it either. It was brutal. It was funny to me. Like, I just felt like I was literally in WWE, but it was, I didn't enjoy that one either.
1: I think it's meant to turn his, like, first phase, which is slow with telegraphed attacks on its head, where roll, like, roll spamming away will just have him WWE catch you and slam you to the ground, you know? You're meant to, like, have to match his battle ferocity rather than be able to tank it out, but it really is just, like, aggro to the 110%, like, he kicks ass.
0: Yeah, Sam, uh how did you feel about the well there's two things so I, I think I mean there's a plethora of differences between Elden Ring and DS3 of course but I think the two major uh, mechanics are, are things that they introduced in Elden Ring That how did you feel about the open world and how did you feel about the jump mechanic because when I look back on it I think a jump mechanic in DS3 obviously it had one but to the extent that Elden Ring has would be really cool
2: I think the jump mechanic is a good uh, implementation. I don't think it's done perfectly. I think there's some issues with it and how fast certain weapons are and when people can be hit. But the idea of adding a jump into the move set, I think, is is a very good cause. And it, it's not done that poorly in Elden Ring. It definitely adds more than it hurts. Um, the open world, it's quite fun and is very adventurous. Uh, especially for your first time. It is um, more of a world of mystery, and having the freedom to move around and discover is really fun as a PvE player. Um, the Probably the biggest criticism I'd give the open world isn't really the open world's fault, as much as it is, it is this other system, which I think might be the most disliked system in Elden Ring, which is the crafting system. Um... I feel like the crafting system, because you go through some of these things, or you discover, or you push past these enemies, and then you get a crafting item that you probably don't want. And it just, it it can really take the tension and make things anticlimactic.
0: Did you, do you not like the idea of, of... okay, let me rephrase that. In my opinion, I really liked the crafting element. I wish that a lot of the items were more viable. If the items were more viable, do you think that would change your tune into thinking that the, the craftable items would be, would be interesting? Because right now, I'm, I'm doing like a strength and dex playthrough and trying to make myself item-reliant. And I'm confident
2: in funny. saying no. <laughs> I don't think it would make it more enjoyable. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I, 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 just, I think that if they were more viable, that it would add more of a variety of things that, that could be going on. But I feel like in all of their games, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, um, Sekiro, I actually did use the items. But, but Dark Souls, Bloodborne, and Elden Ring, I rarely find myself using any of the items that either I could buy or craft. Uh, and I wish that they were a more viable option.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, in Sekiro, I'm like, I'm all over those shinobi tools. Um, But in most of the other games, really, I only use items for the beginning of the game. And I know Elden Ring, I went through most of it without crafting. At some point, I tried crafting arrows, and then that was it, because I started buying Radon spears instead of crafting, so really i feel like it's just an unneeded system it gives some interesting lore it's at least filler for like item pickups but the open world i think really put way too much weight on needing loot to be around so a lot of the loot becomes worth like worthless like exploring Kalid is pointless you know for anything besides wanting to go to (laughs) Kalid.
2: Yeah, um, I, I feel like that's its biggest crime, is that it, it, it takes away from the open world.
1: At the same time, I think that making your own goals and adventuring in a game is like, you know, it's the best thing you can ask for your own satisfaction. Uh, I don't know. I do have one I do wanna...
2: Oh, go on. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, 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 anyway, I was going to say, um, if the items were better, I, I can confidently say I don't think it'd make it more enjoyable for me. Because then I would just feel more like I need to go out and get these materials from maybe multiple places to make this item. And some of the materials are ridiculously rare or difficult to come across or a slog. Whereas I'd much rather just spend my runes and buy them if I really wanted the items.
0: The lazy man's
2: way. It's just, uh, if my build... Really hinges on certain items that I need. Like when I would make SL forty or sixty builds in like Dark Souls, I would uh, I'd much rather buy those items that I would use. Like it might have been the um, uh, like buffs or hunters charms or fire bombs. Like those items were decently useful for invasion, but I wouldn't want to go out and farm the crafting materials to make them either.
1: I agree with that. I think that ease of access to items for gameplay utility is like a must. One of my biggest criticisms with Elden Ring when it came out was the like lack of Titanite available. You know, it's not called Titanite, but whatever. Um one question I no, have No, there's
2: be... Smithing Stone 8. three, four, <laughs> five
1: <laughs> <right>. seven, eight <laughs> Don't forget the sound smithing stones. Uh so sam um one thing i think about Elden ring is that overwhelmingly you are a more powerful character you know you've got better spells better weapons things scale harder like you know when something scales highly you know it you do a ton of damage and you can get a you know you can get like 2000 health or something with the great runes um and that power level sort of puts you over a lot of what you see in other games because in some way the PvE is harder and more demanding but that changes how the the PvP goes like i think a lot of the issues with fights ending quickly is from people being that strong i'm uh, interested to know in your thoughts on that
2: i think you're absolutely correct on that you've got bosses with way more health <laughs> way more damage than most of the time in previous entries. So therefore, the player is going to have, you know, more damage. But the health, I don't think, translates quite the same way. So you've got these really high damage items, and they still do that very, very high damage to players. I think that that could be solved by simply changing the amount of damage that is done to players. Um, in addition to other balance reworks, but I also don't expect FromSoft to do something like that. Like, often, there are many suggestions I could make for the game, and I will absolutely make them, and I would encourage them, but at the same time, I'm realistic in the sense that I don't think they'll be implemented. I dislike when people say that people shouldn't suggest something because FromSoft will never do that. Well, I think that's just a very negative way of going about things, but at the same time you do have to be realistic and expect that you you know they may not make uh, certain changes even if they would be very good
1: yes you shouldn't shut down conversation and discussion about the game even if some of it gets unrealistic and what the expect you know like be realistic with expectations but still discuss the game mechanics to their fullest extent
0: yeah we talked about it in our our last episode where, uh, you know, it was discussed that, you know, FromSoft, you know, only makes games for themselves and they wouldn't change anything based on what the community was saying. And I was curious on your opinion on it where I, I was of the mind that because Elden Ring surpassed such levels of participation, um, you know, after it was released... That now with a bigger fan base, I, I guess you know you. <clears throat> with anything, you have a small developer, you have a small musician, you have a small whatever. Once they get big, sometimes things happen to change, and I'm I'm just kind of curious on your opinion on that, whether or not you think the fact that you know they went from uh, you know the gate kept communities of of the Dark Souls games and Bloodborne, where it was you know people stayed away that didn't like difficult games, and now you have like this game where it's like everybody's playing it and it doesn't matter if it's difficult or not. It was a a huge game. Do you think that'll have any effect on anything that FromSoft does in the future or with
2: Elden Ring? I'd like to let your co-host answer that first.
1: Yeah, so... I think that Elden Ring going mainstream, honestly, I don't think it'll change their approach. You know, I think what they saw was pretty much fulfillment in their formula and recognition for something they've been doing and practicing for a very long time. Um, I think what it will change is, like, the company, like, the publisher company's belief in From Software as a developer, you know, like, they'll get more support, they might get more um, projects going off the ground because of their success. And we might even see more people replicating their design theories in the coming years. You know, there's already a good amount of soulsborn. Um, I hate to say knockoffs because they're all their own thing and made well. You know, like, there's inspiration going around that's inspired by the money and inspired by like, the talent and recognition and artistry that goes into the game. Um, I only really see good things. Uh, I don't think that they'll cave to a lot of, like, crowd, like, Fan expectations so that are off the wheel.
2: Well, uh, I guess my two cents on this would be I expect some things to change, and I would argue they already have from previous episodes. Um, but they're, they tend to be smaller things, but they can affect uh, the game or at least the PvP scene quite dramatically. So Dark Souls 3 was the first game to implement password matchmaking. That was a big change, and, and a huge uh, change from previous entries. In Dark Wait. Souls 2... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Wasn't it Bloodborne? Did, wasn't Bloodborne released in 2016 and DS3 released after?
2: Yeah, but I, did Bloodborne have password matchmaking? Yeah, it does. Okay, well that would have been the first title to enter it. Dark Souls 3 was the first Dark Souls to, uh, to do it. Okay, it was gotcha. influenced majorly it was still much by better
1: than Dark Souls 2 the ring system. Sorry to yeah, interrupt. So I was just...
2: in, yeah, in Dark Souls 1, it just was based off of your, your soul level. There wasn't even weapon match. And um, you just summon somebody. If you're trying to summon a friend, well, you had to kind of coordinate that. But it was clear that you know the uh, co-op uh, PV community wanted something easier, right? And the game wasn't built as a co-op game. It just wasn't. Dark Souls 1 wasn't built as a co-op game. So in Dark Souls 2, in keeping, you know, mostly true to the original system, they implemented the name engraving ring. It's Like, okay, you can get this and make it easier to find your friend's sign. And then in Bloodborne, and Dark Souls 3, they were like, all right, we're going to go ahead and give you password match. In my opinion, this is them caving more and more to the co-op uh, PvE. And although that can be good, it can also be bad. It can be bad in the sense that they've stripped this identity of summoning random people away for a lot of people's playthroughs. You're not finding some you know, random hero to help you through. You're specifically and only engaging with somebody that you want. And that that removes you from the online system, in a way. And then in Elden Ring, uh, we went uh, a step further to where not only is there password matchmaking, but they removed um, solo host invasions as well, thus further removing these people from the uh, online system, right? So I think that those are some major changes that have happened. I would also argue, although this one's more theorized, that the poise mechanics and the backstab system changed as a result due to um, some of this uh, overwhelming uh, increase of players who didn't understand these uh, more niche and maybe poorly explained system. So... In DS3, having the active poise system to where you only had poise active during hyper armor when you used an attack that had hyper armor, and it's not always very clear what weapons and attacks would have that, made a lot of people not understand it. There were many threads and videos about poise being turned off in DS3. And I think FromSoft saw that, and they may be changed their tune and thought maybe people didn't understand it, or maybe it was a bad system, I think that got to them and may have changed. But that's also just very uh, theoretical. As well as the backstab system, like I explained, it's very weird to see yourself get backstabbed when you're facing somebody. And maybe this idea and the prince of Dark Souls being a backstab fest and things like that also may have Influence them to change the backstab system. I also might theorize that in the next game, after Elden Ring, due to the popularity of the seamless co-op mod, that their next game may include stronger cooperative elements.
0: I was, I, I was of the same mind, um, especially doing the co-op in Bloodborne where it's based on insight and the only way to gather insight you know aside from finding it is by going to bosses where like you know you get a some insight for finding the boss and you get some insight for killing the boss so it made it so when doing co-op you couldn't you couldn't just be willy-nilly about it it was like very calculated of like even when you were playing with a friend they did have the password matching it was like okay like i only have 20 insight left i don't want to run this whole thing with you i'm going to get there and and then we're going to use this 20 insight on the on the boss together whereas in elden ring it's as easy as you know just going and picking some flowers that are like in a large abundance across the map and that was one thing that i thought was interesting where i saw with new players they're like wow this co-op system is like so difficult and i'm like no it, this is like beyond easy with the, like at least in terms of previous Souls games where it was like I don't really need to do anything to to join your game. Like I just I need to pick some flowers and then put my sign down. Um and then yeah, I, I was of the same mind as well that I was curious to see what their co-op looked like in future games and was like curious like would they introduce something like being able to chat? You know, like right now you can't really there's no interaction other than gestures between and I was like, huh, I wonder if like now that this game is so big, like chatting when you're playing games is a huge thing and i wonder if they were going to introduce that make it easier
1: to join each other or again introduce more co-op
0: elements so i definitely see that, some of the points that you were saying getting there... do you have some thoughts on it
1: yeah no i think that sam had some really good points especially about the uh the cooperative elements becoming more keenly focused on i think that for a long time they've been wanting to iron out how cooperation works and make it easy to do with other people since they like the idea of people playing the game together. I also share a lot of the same worries about invading. I'm actually extremely disappointed that you can't be solo invaded. Like, I play a lot of the game solo, and I know a lot of, like, very good PvE players play the game solo and enjoy invasions, because it just adds something to the dungeons and levels that, you know, it's unexpected. Like, it adds a real chance of dying in a game where, like, I Generally, don't die, and that's what's fun about it. Like seeing someone that knows the level as well as I do be an asshole and run back to use mobs as cover. So I have to think tactically about my approach. Is the more interesting, and you know, going through a level like I always do.
2: So the the lack of solo invasion. There actually was a small bit of this in Dark Souls Three that, unless you're majorly into PvP, you probably didn't notice or know about. If in Dark Souls 3, you don't summon a phantom, and you don't invade a world, like you don't touch a sign, even when you're embered, you cannot be invaded at Highwall or in Undead Settlement until Hodrick invades. So unless you engage in the online activity by placing your sign down, summoning somebody, you will not be invaded. So there actually is that period where the game kind of gives you this safety in Dark Souls um And the other thing I wanted to mention is that had it not been for solo invasion, many people, myself included, probably would have never gotten into pvP invading. So this is actually a really bad thing in the long run for the uh p v p community as it will no doubt bleed us players in the long run
0: i um i th- the same thing is in Bloodborne, too, where like if you're playing single player. You're not invaded. Like, there are certain guidelines where you're not invaded until you get to certain levels where the Sinister Bell is being rung. Um, So there is a period of safety, and then it introduces you to the PvP element, and like you, yeah, I might not have gotten into it so much had I not been, like, kind of running on my own and then, you know, taking the invasions. Um, One of the other things I wanted to mention, too... With the not allowing the the two on one, not not allowing the one on one um, invasions, is invaders are already at a disadvantage, of course, and then you're at a further disadvantage by invading with a game of two or three people. Like if they balance that a little bit better, it might be okay. But I think you know, I sometimes people are like, oh, like you. I've heard people say I've gotten messages when I've been playing, being like, oh, you shouldn't heal when I'm invading. I'm like. Well, no, like, when you invade, you you know that you're going to have the lesser advantage, but you're going to try and use your skill to overcome it. But I think the fact that you can't do it one-on-one is, like, a little unfair. I think it's too much disadvantage, where unless you're running some meta build, which is maybe why we're seeing it so much in Elden Ring, if you're not doing that, it makes invading so much less... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? it makes invading so much less not appealing but like uh, what's the word when you when you want to do something but you can't do it i don't know it doesn't matter but either way i i agree that yeah the the losing of the solo invading like definitely hurt the community in my opinion cuz then it, if you're not going to be doing invading then you're only going to be doing a duel and then there's like a lot of rules that surround that that make it a little bit less interesting where you're in a specific location and you're summoned to it and then... It's
2: people looking for a different experience, right? Like,
1: Yeah. It's a variation I, I also, on gameplay.
2: I also remember, Gideon, you mentioned that you had played as an ultra Faithful a lot. And one of the things that uh, leaves me with such despair is the lower player count. And you don't get these chaotic 3v3 or 4v2 invasions anymore. Uh, and, and that is a big loss to me because I spent most of my invasion time uh, later in Dark Souls playing against um, often higher skill opponents in Post Pontiff area with the three v three or in Ring City with four v twos, and then the fact that that's gone just it hurts.
1: I agree. I think that chaos can bring a lot of balancing out into the game, like. When a player, when a PVE-only player is thrown into a battle where they have a summon, a hunter, and then two to three invaders, it's not a battle that they're going to instantly lose if they're not talented in PvP. Because anyone that's talented in PvP is going to be caught up with each other. I think that idea of making PVE players worlds battlegrounds for like higher skill players and the fit in the form of invaders and defenders is one of the things that from software has always wanted to try but like evidently from how the hunter system works with you always being late is sort of hard to implement
0: one of the last questions i wanted to ask you sam is what what did you love about elden ring what really stuck out to you as as you know or was there anything but yeah i mean what what parts of the game stuck out to you as being uh, being brilliant and being really enjoyable
2: i do quite enjoy the lore i think the lore has a lot of good work and story behind it uh not that the dark souls games didn't but as you dig into it it's it's different from the dark souls games but it is very similarly uh wonderful feeling and you can tell it's written by expert uh story crafters and whatnot i also have to applaud um the vastness of the open world and how small it can make you feel, uh, and how lively the world is, and these different areas are expertly designed and whatnot, like the look of them. It's, getting into a new area was always super exciting, and the areas are very distinguished from each other, so that's probably my highest praises for the game.
0: Nice. Well, we appreciate you joining us, and we're glad that you helped us tackle the boss of the DS3 and Elden Ring comparison. Is there uh, anything that you want to plug before we uh, send you back to your world?
2: There is one thing that isn't directly a comparison between the two, but I feel like I have to say it. um, From my experience in PvP uh, and what I read from people on, uh, re- on Reddit, especially subreddits like uh, uh, Bad Redman, as well as uh, uh, other PvP subreddits. And anywhere people talk about <laughs> PvP and videos and whatnot, we're, I think we're in trouble on the PC PvP community. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I don't want to take up too much time on this, but uh, the Dark Souls servers have been down for a long time. Uh, many months now, uh, since January. And although FromSoft has assured a couple times that they are working on it, there is always the possibility that they don't come back, and the truth that I've been having to face here is that there is some irreparable damage that has been done, and I'm not sure how large of a community we can culminate now that the hype from Elden Ring has died down, and many of these players have, uh, have left. The private server isn't a long-term solution. Uh, we are bleeding players. Um, the views on YouTube and Twitch are going down. There's a lot of fatigue. I'm far from the only person disappointed with Elden Ring PvP, and that's uh, leading some people to stop with content or, or, or clearly are um, forcing themselves to publish content, even though they're not enjoying it. And I know it doesn't sound very good. It's not a very uh, pretty picture I'm painting here, but I-, I feel like there's a real problem here in the long run.
1: Yeah. Um... It's worrying to... about the long-term health of the PvP community when like, the servers can't keep up with the interest. You know, The interest is going to die, and it won't come back as easily as when it was first sparked.
2: Yeah, exactly, and you know we we have issues with people engaging in the PvP, which I think we're bleeding more players than we're getting new players. You know, so it's it's not a good position right now, and I'm quite worried, if I'm being honest. As far as things that I would like to plug, uh, although I have been not uploading as often, I do upload some content uh, with Dark Souls. I do upload some guides, especially for uh, Dark Souls 3, uh, Improving Yourself at PvP. I've got some great guides there. Um, I would also like to uh, mention that there are a couple of small channels that have engaged with me in the homing soulcast, and they're often uh, criminally underrated uh, channels. I watch a lot of small souls, too. Um, the one I'm going to mention here by name is Prun. Um, super small channel, but the videos he makes are absolutely hated by the YouTube algorithm, uh, but absolutely please check out that channel um, for uh, for some good, uh, especially Elden Ring discussion and whatnot. Great guy.
0: Awesome. Yeah, yeah well, thank you for joining the Roundtable Hold. Uh, Gidon, do you have any last words for Sam?
1: Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. You can have your great rune. Uh, you'll find links to all of those channels down below. Um... Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Sam. <laughs> it was great, honestly.
0: All right, well, yeah, that was the Elden Ring and DS3 comparison. Uh, that was Sam from the Homing Souls cast series. We're going to, again, like Gideon mentioned, posting some links below. Uh, Gideon, I know that you have something really cool to plug, so why don't you tell him about it?
1: Yeah, so for... About two months ago, back when I was obsessed enough with the Elden Ring lore to read about it while I was at work, I strolled through the wiki, I read every item description multiple times, and by the end of it I compiled this document that has most of the item descriptions sourced within a general timeline. It has a general paraphrased lore that crosses thirteen pages describing from the prehistory and the great old one that all beings spawned to uh all the way to the shattering to the player restoring order and whatever it might follow the player restoring the elden ring or destroying it um you'll find the link to that but down below it's uh it's been a vast project yeah there's uh, a <clears throat> who never I understand
0: the lore through others' eyes and I never fully grasped like, you know, as as my first playthrough went on, I definitely understood the gist of it, but even if you're someone that has a very basic understanding, Gideon's lore document really puts things into perspective and it made my second playthrough uh, a lot more fun because I, I knew a lot of where the characters stood in that world and what their interactions were with other characters, and it adds... It adds a really nice layer, so I'd recommend you check it out. Um, I know that our next episode is gonna be covering, you know, not just the lore document, but the the lore in general. So definitely keep an eye out for that one. We really thank you for, you know, joining us on our second episode. We thank Sam for joining us at, joining it joining us on it as well. Uh Gidon, did you have anything that you wanted to add?
1: Yeah, the uh, the next episode will include our discussion of the document, our discussion of the game, and the going symbolism that From Software has always talked about, and even the community responses after the release of this episode and of the document. Uh, I'm happy to hear your thoughts. I'm excited to see the debate. You know, I'm sure I've gotten some things wrong, and uh, I'll be interested to hear feedback.
0: Yeah, and if you are ever interested in being a guest or, you know, have topics you want us to cover or thoughts on it, definitely, you know, shoot us an email. We'll put a link for that down, you know, make a comment or whatever. But yeah, again, this has been Elden Kings and Elden Ring discussion, and we thank you for joining.